Salam, salam, ishtanin, singe. Welcome to the Samovar Network. My name is Nuda. And I'm Dawood, aka Diz. And we are so stoked to be together. This has been a minute since you and I have co hosted. Uh, yeah. Uh, the last one I think you and I co hosted was the funerals one. Wow. And that, that was, was that was like, like you were basically the host. I was host slash guest, and Iman was our other guest yeah. for that yeah. episode. Yeah, that had me, been a while. Me and the Sadiq family, we go, we go back. Yeah, like, you're our brother from another mother. <laughs> yep, uh, I love it. That's, uh, if if that's my second family, I'll take it. <laughs> like that's that's one great family to be a part of. I hate to tell you, but we've already taken you. So I don't know what discussion. You know, the fact that my aunt has already, like, tried to marry you off is, like, the best <laughs> rite of passage ever. I'm like, he's officially family. Like, my aunt feels like she can be involved in his love life. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I quickly <laughs> ran away. You were very smart. You were like, hell no. <laughs> she told me to wait there. I'm going to bring a girl for you to talk to. And I said, nope. I called I my have, Uber and bounced. I have never seen you leave a situation so quick. It was like the reverse of Afghan goodbye. It's like 90 miles an hour and I get a text like I'm out. I'm like, okay, some James hey Bond shit. I had to. I had to. It's like, look, it's cool. I'll go on the dance floor. I'll dance with everyone in the family. Like I'll do all that. But, you know, we're at a wedding. You're trying to marry me off. <laughs> they're trying to make you the next wedding because they're bored and they just want to party again. So if they bring you in, then they are insured another party. You it's see? true. But, and they um, saw that I was lit, so they wanted a lit party. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but now I have to get up out of there. <laughs> but speaking of friends and family, we are um, having a conversation today with one of your close friends. Yes, one of my, uh, my close friends, his name is Trey Gonzalez. Uh, Trey and I used to work together. Um, a few years back when uh, when Trey first moved to Southern California and we instantly had a bond like he became one of my closest like co-workers that I've ever had like in in a short period of time and like we were kicking it like he's come to the house he's my he's had my mom's cooking he watched the Royal Rumble with me uh, so he's super good dude and now he's in Hawaii and we were lucky enough to make him wake up at like 7 a.m. his time. And that's <laughs> and, sacrifice and love for yeah, you. Yeah, I got him to jump on the podcast. And it was a great, great conversation that we had with Trey. Um, so so Trey's a very, like, he, he does a lot of activism work, right? And you'll, you'll hear more about his activism work um, once you listen to the actual main part of this podcast. But there was a lot that I got from it. And... I was even surprised because he said something that like I forgot that he was a part of, and I was just like, "Whoa," you know. So yeah, Trey was it's, Trey was at the foreground um, of uh, the Black Lives Matter work when Trayvon Martin was um, innocently taken away. Like at that time, is like I think when our generations and resurgence of awareness of um, innocent Black lives being lost became a movement, and so what's been cool is like. He's a, he's Afro he's Afro Latino he's Black and Latino and he lives at this interesting intersection and just when we talk to him you hear like he's done work with Dream Defenders in Florida he's done work with Black Boys with My Brother's Keeper in Chicago and helped build that program and he's so damn humble about it and I feel like if we're thinking about who is part of BLM and who do we learn from in, in the current moment. It's leaders like Trey. So I was really excited to just be part of the conversation with you and get to listen and hear from him. Yeah. And it was great because, um, you know, like I, Trey and I like, will text and we'll talk via Facebook and social media. But this was like the first time like we had like a full conversation in a long time. So it brought me back to our old working day. So it was great. Um, but I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. We enjoyed recording it. Um, so without further ado, we're going to go into our conversation with Trey. The Samovar Network. All right, guys, we're back. And we're here with Trey. 
uh, Trey, do you kind of want to give us an introduction about who you are, where you're from? Yeah, of course. Uh, first and foremost, thank you guys so much for having me here. Um, it's always a pleasure. And um, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you guys a little bit about myself. So my name's Trey. Uh, I am from Florida, from Central Florida, but I've lived pretty much all over the U.S. Um, I went to school in the Chicagoland area. And that's really where um, I got really introduced and sort of sucked into um, activism. And, you know, that's kind of the story for a lot of us that go to college. You know, we find ourselves, we grow, we, we thrive, we start to blossom. And so while I was in college, worked with a number of different organizations surrounding activism. But one in particular, I actually helped streamline and start. It was called My Brother's Keeper. And as you know, Chicago doesn't get the best reputation for some reason. And um, there's a lot of stigmas, a lot of false stigmas, in my opinion. But um, started an organization called My Brother's Keeper. Had the opportunity to work with numerous young men, particularly Black youth in the Chicago area. And, um, you know, had a chance to really just get to know them and learn about what they wanted to do. It wasn't so much as coming in there and saying like, hey, you know, this is a screwed up place. Like, you know, you have to find a way to get out of here. It's more so just saying like, hey, like, who are you? What do you want in life? You know, who this is who we are. We just want to provide a support system. We don't just want to, we didn't want to be an entity that came in there and tried to change anything. Because in my opinion, like we appreciate the South side of Chicago. We appreciated the, the West side. Like that is, that is a very unique place. And to be honest, I really wouldn't want to see it change too much culturally. And so that's, that's what we really focused on. And in that, you know, the organization grew. It's still active to this day, 10 days, um, 10 years later. It's part of the and, Obama uh, Foundation now, right? I was about to say, isn't this the Barack Obama initiative? It, 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 is, part, it is part of it. It's a chapter within that. Um, but, but yeah, it's been really good to, to be a part of that and just to see it continue. Because, you know, you graduate and, you know, life happens. But it, it's good to see that people saw the value within that and they, you know, they definitely kept it going. And then after that, um, after school, I returned. Well, actually, let me, let me, let me back up a little bit. So while I was in college, um, Trayvon Martin was killed, unfortunately, by, by George Zimmerman. And um, that actually just started and sparked a, a movement, not only in, in the Florida area, but really throughout the U.S., but in Florida in particular, it, it really created this large flame. And in South Florida and Central Florida, um, pretty much a ton of black youth, you know, in college, out of college. Um, I guess you could say a lot of, of young black and a young, a lot of young minority millennials got together and we literally marched to the Florida State Capitol in opposition of the way that things were being handled. And Stand Your Ground was just written atrociously. And we were all so passionate. We, we were all a little bit um, nervous at first because we're like, man, like, why is nobody talking about this? Like, why, why are we as young people the only ones that sh seem to be showing passion? But we were able to unify, you know, so many individuals from so many different walks of life were able to unify and the Dream Defenders actually uh, was birthed, thank to that, uh, thank you to that um, situation, that gross injustice that occurred. And we actually occupied the Florida State Capitol uh, for around 30 days, and it, it garnered a lot of attention. That's that's really what put Dream Defenders on the map. And ever since that, Dream Defenders has really been on the ground in every single case of injustice. Um, it doesn't matter if you're white. It doesn't matter if you're black. We, you know, we've been pretty much everywhere. And in Florida in particular, I don't know. There, there's so many injustices. You know, I know a lot of people, you know, see Florida as being such a crazy place. But in reality, it really is. It, it's one situation. I know I just said that Chicago gets such a bad stigma. But the stigmas in Florida are 100% true. And a lot of that, I'd say probably a good 90% of it stems from the leadership and from the politics and from the laws that are just so grossly, you know, against and targeting people of color and especially uh, black and brown youth. And so the fact that Dream Defenders was able to grow out of that, you know, and me, I think at the time I was like 
22 or, or 21, I was, I was inspired, you know, I was with so many like-minded individuals and, you know, I, I learned so much about so many different other cultures and I learned so much about laws and so much about politics and how this, you know, this, this stuff is so, uh, I guess, rigged against us. And it's great to see that people can have the power. I think that's what Dream Defenders really relies on is inspiring people and helping people to realize that we as a people really do have the power to make change and to inspire and to teach. And so after that, um, I helped really streamline and start the Dream Defenders Tampa organization. That's, that's where I'm from. I'm from the Tampa Bay area. And so Dream Defenders was started in Miami. If you're not too familiar with the state of Florida, Tampa and Miami are about a good four hours apart. But um, starting the Dream Defenders Tampa organization really helped the organization sort of move out of that South Florida toehold into an entirely new market, which focused on the Tampa Bay area as well as the Orlando area. And there is a Dream Defenders Orlando chapter as well and a Dream Defenders Tallahassee organization now. So pretty much we've, we've dominated the entire state of Florida and um yeah, it's 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 been really good. You know, we were in Ferguson. We've been to Palestine. Y'all um, went to Palestine? Yeah, the, the organization has been to Palestine. Um, they yeah, there was a. Um, How did that come so, about? Like, what um, was that? That's different than the BLM Ferguson trip to Palestine, yes, yes, yes. or is that the same? Well, so, well, so it, it. I think there was a few different entities that were there, but I know that there were representatives that were with Dream Defenders, as well as with the actual Black Lives Matter initiative that were there on the ground. I think mm -hmm. it was sort of like a, a trip to just really, really sort of unite, you know, the movements together, the black and brown movements together. And um, the, the imagery that just came out of there, you know, Phil Agnew, he was actually one of the uh, co-founders of Dream Defenders. He was there and um, Steve Pargett was there. There were a few other individuals that were were there and just some of the imagery that came out of there and people were shocked like people were like you know why why are you guys in the middle east like this has nothing to do with us now this is obviously people that aren't you know within the movement or within the community saying this but people were just so stunned because they just didn't think that dream defenders was aware enough to recognize the global injustices taking place and in particular you know the the inherent genocide that you know, has been taking place there. Um, we yes, we had since, no choice. Since the forties. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we we had no choice but to actually arrive there and arrive in solidarity. And you know, it it wasn't just for images. It wasn't just for imagery. You know, we you know the organization went there and we spoke to the people because you know you can claim to know about things all you want, but I think one of the best forms of education is to actually speak to people, you know, mm -hmm. and not to speak to intellectuals, not to speak to, you know, scientists or anything like that, you know, which though obviously those are great avenues to take. But I feel like it's very important to speak to the people that are there and that have been there for literally their lifetime. They're, they've been experienced, you know, they've been experiencing that treatment for a lifetime. And so it was just a very inspiring action. Dream Defenders has taken so many different you know, avenues and, you know, we perform so many different actions, but that one in particular was probably one of the most powerful because it found a way to really truly unite the black and brown movements. And not only in the, the Middle East or not only in the Arab world and not in the black community, but really just globally, you know, Dream Defenders has openly spoke about, you know, the injustice and tyranny that has happened here in Hawaii surrounding the Kanaka and you know, the stealing of Mauna Kea, which was literally one of the most sacred places, not for not only for Hawaiians and not only for Polynesians in the Kanaka, but really worldwide. And so it's just Dream Defenders is an amazing organization. I'm not here to plug it or anything <laughs> like that, but um, it, it truly is an organization. And there are numerous, numerous organizations out there that we've worked with, but Dream Defenders is one organization that is very special and it's actually kind of sad. I it this is one I this is where I'm going to continue to sort of talk about my my um journey, but a lot of us have gotten older and we've sort of had to pass on the torch 
But um, I, I learned a lot through organizing with Dream Defenders, and um, it was very special to be able to to lead action and to be able to actually share our stories. And at one point in my time with Dream Defenders, I was actually one of the um, communications reps. So I would be the one that would be speaking on news and media. And it would just be so interesting to go back and watch the interviews because literally they would only focus on like one piece of what you say, when in reality, like they don't want people to to see what's really going on. You know, they just pick yeah. and choose what they want the people to I hear. And that's what I'm curious about is sort of like, what do you think in terms of that moment too, is like you are sharing all these things and then they only pull out one piece. How do you, what, what do you make of what's going on with the protests in Portland and what we're seeing versus what's going on? Like, what's your intuition about the current movement situation and what we're seeing and what we should be looking for? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what's happening in Portland right now is is very scary, and I think what's what's really scary about it is, um, you know, for me, I've always been a history buff, and um, you know, now that we're seeing you know Nazism increase in the U.S. and we're starting to see this sort of foothold taking place, really, really everywhere. Um, I've always been fascinated by World War II and the rise of Nazism. And for some reason, the imagery that I'm seeing out of Portland just really reminds me of the SS, the Nazi SS coming in to Munich. You know, they were in Berlin and they just came in and they were just literally just rounding yeah, up people and stealing people, them and taking yeah. them. That's, and that's it exactly just what's going on right now. It's like people are literally getting kidnapped and we're watching it live on TV um, or actually, sorry, we're not watching it live on TV. We're watching it live on Twitter because they're exactly. not putting it on TV, right? Um, exactly. It's just it's just crazy because, like, I remember you and I. So, for for those who don't know, so Trey and I go back. Well, it's been three and a half, four years now. When you moved out to to Southern California. Yes. Yes. So 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 Trey moved out um, from from Florida. To Southern California about like back in like 2016, 2017, yeah, 2016, I think it was. And uh, Trey and I were working together and we worked together in South Orange County, which is a predominantly white affluent area. And I think we may have been like two or three of the only people of color in that store. Yes. Um, And and we had other people of color, but they were very white passing. Yes. Yes. So people people didn't know that they were actually POC. Whereas Trey and I, like I have a fucking thick ass beard. I look, <laughs> I, I can't pretend to be anything other than Middle Eastern, right? Maybe you are yes. like the poster child of what a terrorist looks like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, thick beard, thick eyebrows, you know. Like, um, and and Trey is black, right? So we would have like it's it's funny because he and I got a bond that first day, like that he came in. Yep. Um, he, he would shadow me at work and we just like, we instantly had this bond because both of us were transplants from other parts of the country and then came to South Orange County and we would both notice like little things like how customers would like look at me and him, right. Or how yeah. they would ask other people to help them. And like, that's where our bond like started. Cause we both got treated like weirdly by customers and through that, we started talking about, like, a lot of stuff that we were doing. Like, so me doing activism for the Afghan community and Trey working with Dream Defenders. And it's crazy because I found out about, I think BLM started after Trayvon Martin, right? If I'm not mistaken. Um, that is correct. That's uh, correct. So around the time of Trayvon Martin and after that, uh, what happened in Ferguson um, and then what happened in New York. So you being with with dream defenders early on after that Trayvon Martin thing like can you talk a little bit more about that like just like how that sparked a nationwide conversation yes definitely um so i i think what's really crazy about Trayvon Martin you know being unjustly and and horrendously just snuffed out by the system as well a lot of people just continuously blame Zimmerman which obviously yes um, he was the one that pulled the trigger, but just 
continuing to be snuffed out by the entire criminal justice system and the DOJ. Um, it, it's just really been eye-opening to see that this has continued to increase. It's not only continued, but it has just continued to increase. And I think for me, um, every every hashtag that I see, every individual that I see that is killed, um, is in particular by law enforcement, or they're just, you know, arrested and thrown in jail for no reason. And then you see a, a non-person of color get lighter charges or don't get any charges at all. Mm-hmm. It's just been extremely um just terrible. Man. I don't I don't know how to put it and you know being a being a person of color, you know, you, you kind of have to to learn to keep going. You know, it's like literally shoveling sand against the tide. And, um, yeah. you know, continuing to see these hashtags is is obviously very depressing and very saddening. But I think what's been most empowering is learning and understanding that this movement has grown. It, it truly has. And it's, it's grown because of organizing and in particular, um, every single entity that I've met, every single organization has been led by black women in particular. Mm-hmm. and women of color and that's been probably the most empowering because obviously you know I've, I've worked in corporate america where you don't see any any leadership by any black women of color at least every organization that i've worked with so it's been super empowering to see women of color that have literally steered this movement um in the directions that it's needed to take and i think that's honestly a discussion that we we all should have is um you know, where, where are we truly headed as a country? Because obviously we don't have any leadership that is doing so. You know, we have a few flashes of individuals such as AOC or, you know, a, a lot AOC, a lot of individuals that are that are in Washington that can make a difference. But we need to find our identity. And I think that's what the movement has really helped to do for a lot of people, a lot of different organizations and um but it's just been sad you know to see the continued hashtags and i think what hit me the hardest out of everything was definitely trayvon martin not, i'm sorry not trayvon martin tamir rice um to see you know the video and to see that come out i i assumed this was obviously a false assumption but i assumed that that one video would spark a change within everybody white people black people hispanic people you know i i just anticipated that being the singular moment in this country and in this movement where we could all come together and realize that this this is all jacked up. This is all messed up. Like it was literally a state sanctioned drive-by on a, you know, on a child. And I literally just saw people saying like he deserved it, like he shouldn't have been out there. All all horrendously bad things, you know. And even even hearing those things from people within the community, you know, within the black community saying and justifying his death. So there I definitely feel like there have been a lot of moments where, you know, you just feel defeated and, you know, it feels terrible. But I I have also seen so many great examples of the movement growing and the identity continuing to formulate. And um, yeah, it's it's just it's been really beautiful to see. You made me think of this um, quote that uh, Robin D.G. Kelly said. Um, he wrote, I think it was after the death of Eric Garner. He said, we, know, we all know the names and how they died. And he lists the names. Uh, Eric Garner, Kajimi Powell, um, Mike Brown, Ad Infinitum. And he says, like, they were unarmed and shot down by police under circumstances for which lethal force was unnecessary. Yes. And the thing that, like, stuck with me is he goes, we hold their names like recurring nightmares accumulating the dead like ghoulish baseball cards except that there is no trading no forgetting just a stack of dead bodies that rises every time we blink yes that literally gave me goosebumps here it did yeah Yeah, like it's because we're still seeing it right like trey like you started this workout like it was 10 years ago right yeah um or close to 10 years ago when everything started and now we're in the year 2020 we're in the middle of a freaking global pandemic and it's still going on like we to this day we still have Brianna Taylor's killers like free you know like 
um we're recording this on what is it july 24th so hopefully by the time this comes out maybe they'll uh they'll they'll arrest the killers of brianna taylor um but like this is still an ongoing issue and like like you said you thought tamir rice would be the point of like all right this is wrong we need to change it but how long has it been since tamir rice how many more like instances do we need to see how many more george floyds does it take how many more eric garners does it take how many more michael browns does it take how many more brianna taylors how many more ahmaud Aubrey's? like there's so many more names that i can name too like how many more people have to die for us to actually make a change and through your work do you see like do you see like because when you started out i think there was a lot of pushback for blm how do you feel it is now I would definitely say um, the movement has definitely blossomed. And what I mean by that is so, for example, if I were to just turn on CNN or MSNBC and, you know, I were to see the imagery coming from these cities and, you know, the protests that has been happening, I would definitely say that I am seeing more of a demographic that wasn't exactly present in 2012. And what I mean by that is so, for example, at the Capitol, the Florida State Capitol, um, there wasn't too many white men that were there. There wasn't too many individuals that were um, in the LGBTQI community that were there. Um, there wasn't too many. I mean, there were there were definitely a lot of black women and a, and a few black men, but there honestly wasn't as many black men as there are now. And so I just feel like if you were to look now at the imagery, like if you were to just take a screenshot of a protest or any action, let's say in the LA area, and you Mm -hmm. were to just examine that photograph and examine the individuals that are there, I feel like the demographic has drastically changed in a positive way. You go out there, you will see individuals from nearly every walk of life. You know, I I actually saw there was a guy on there, which, which was very ironic. Um, I think he worked at a hedge fund, you know, he just had a t-shirt and shorts on, but he was honest, he was transparent. He was like, Hey, I work at a hedge fund. And you could tell that the the members of the media were confused. They were like, you know, what, you know, what the hell are you doing out here? You don't need to be out here. You make millions of dollars. And he just simply said like, you know, I'm a person of color. Like I, I don't have a choice. I, I literally do not have a choice. I have to be out here. And, um, I, I think that that's been that's been very inspiring to see. Uh, there's been sort of this idea that the movement is really only you know millennials or it's only young people, it's only young people of color. But you know, there's been a lot of talk about this, like oh, you know, should white people be at the forefront or should you know white people even be depicted in the movement? And I simply ask the question, like, why shouldn't they be? Like, I think it's very important for individuals from every walk of life to sort of be there and to experience this because it does truly affect all of us. And I think for a lot of people that claim to love America and and claim to love this country, I don't understand how you can't support the movement. Like if, if anybody is experiencing any case of injustice as an American citizen, as an individual that claims to love people and all lives matter, you know, obviously that statement, you should be inspired to see individuals from every walk of life out there and organizing and protesting. And I think that's what's been beautiful as well, is people have seen the value of organizing. You know, there are more organizers now, obviously, than there were in 2012 or 2014 or 2016 or even 2018. I would Mm -hmm. say the numbers have probably tripled now. And, you know, when we think of organizing as as a idea or as a philosophy, Organizing isn't just the act of, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is when it's going to take place. It's, it's a lot deeper than that because you have to also figure out how to move and how to shake because you have so many different entities out there that are against you. And, you know, we're seeing that in Portland now where activists are literally being sought out by this Gestapo SS-like you know, entity, I don't even think it's law enforcement, you know, but we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. (laughs) But seeing them literally just snatched off the street, just for being an organizer, just for being an activist, like, and in America, which claims to be a free country and, you know, claims to love the Constitution so much. Yeah. It's just very crazy to see. 
I think it, I think that's been the powerful thing with BLM is it brings to light for our generation what maybe people our parents' generation knew that um, act, this kind of movement building is a threat to the state. And um, the I think the incredible thing with BLM is that there are so many, there's not one personality that's like the face. Like the face is multitudes of people. And so they can't take you down if it's a movement that's, in, you know, like nationwide, right? Exactly. Um, and that's been really powerful to see, right? It's, it's not personality driven the way, um, I mean, who knows how people will paint it 20 years from now. But, and it's, it's caught on. Like the fact that like these corporations are saying Black Lives Matter is really been shocking to me. Like uh, I was telling, uh, I was telling Trey, you and Diz before the call about Peloton. The Peloton bike has a hashtag Black Lives Matter. Their instructors talk about it. And wow. it's become, so I'm like, this, this has gone mainstream. Like, I get a little skeptical when I see corporations doing it, because I'm like, I feel like they're just trying to make money off of it sometimes. Yeah, but yeah, also, yeah. the fact that it's caught on enough where they, they are investing in saying this, um, I think is really interesting. I, I think so. And actually, thanks for bringing up the companies and organizations I don't know if you guys saw, but there was a picture either yesterday or a couple of days ago. Fenway Park in Boston put a huge Black Lives Matter banner on the side. Now, for anybody out there that knows baseball or knows the city of Boston or knows Fenway, that that is hands down one of the most, and I, you know, I hate to say this, it's one of the most racist environments Absolutely. on the planet. Not in the U.S., but on the planet. They've repeatedly thrown banana peels in the outfield towards black player, uh, black players. They have um, made like monkey chants and ape chants. They pounded their chest. So like we're talking about an organization that has a fan, I guess, alliance that does not like black people historically. That's, that's a fact. Mm -hmm. I respect Boston. I respect the Red Sox. But historically, they just do not really like black people. I think probably the only black person that they really care about would probably be David Ortiz, who at times has kind of denied being black, but that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think that that was such a powerful message. And it's weird. If you get on Twitter right now and just type in Fenway Park, blah, 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 you will see that their fans are livid. They're, I think there was one guy in there who was saying like, Oh, you know, I've been a season ticket holder for 30 years. That's coming to an end now. And it's like, dude, this is big stuff. You know, when you have Fenway Park putting a massive sign up there. And if you're unfamiliar with Fenway Park, too, it's right alongside um, an interstate in Boston. So everybody is going to see it. If you live on the north side, if you live on the south side, you are going to see that banner. So it's uh, it's been very powerful and inspiring to see these companies. But yes, like you said, there's a lot of performative action that's out there. And yes, they're trying to appeal, you know, to their, their shareholders by continuing to have money streaming in. But I do feel like there are some entities out there that do genuinely care. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think the, the Boston Red Sox might be one of those organizations because that's very pow a powerful statement. But see, you brought up like people talking about, well, I was a 30 year season holder season ticket holder for the Red Sox no longer why like why like, you've done this activism right yes um doing the activism you've probably faced like counter protests right oh, all the time why do you think it is that like people are so fragile when like you're out there protesting like what brings this fragility like because you've been around like like this country a lot right like yeah, I I told Noor this before we started recording, but Trey is one of the people that like have when I say he has lived everywhere, this man has literally lived everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, like he's he's been all around this country. He's seen all sorts of people. So, like, and you've done activism work. Like, why why do you think that these people are getting so fragile now? Like, what is it that they think they're losing, or like what's do you do you have an opinion on it, like, or some thoughts, or heard anything from people? So I, I think it's a few things. Um, it's a, I guess you could say, a proverbial cocktail, um, a, a toxic cocktail. And what I mean by that 
is I feel like a lot of it is the media, in particular right-wing media. A lot of it is just a fear, a deep-seated fear that people have of change. Um, and a lot of it is a false sense of American patriotism. And maybe it's not a false sense. Maybe it's just real. And so let me kind of break down each of those things. Um, so what I mean by the media is for some reason, like the right-wing media just has this idea of protesting as being un-American and being uncalled for and things are going great because Mr. Trump and President Trump has, you know, just given people opportunities and he's put money in people's pockets. So all of these false things, all of these falsehoods and mm -hmm. getting President Trump out of here will make this place lawless and blah, blah, blah. So there's just this false sense of what protesting actually is and what it should be when people can't even just simply take a step back and understand that this country was literally founded. Well, obviously not founded, but you know what I mean? But, built. Um, it was built on the idea of protest. You know, you have actions such as the Boston Tea Party, which is, you know, one of the most prolific actions um, during the American revolutionary or American revolutionary period. And um, for, for people not to understand that simple aspect, it just goes to show that there is really some false ideas of what being American really is and what the American identity is. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know. So, for example, I live here in Hawaii. Uh, I know this kind of highlighted that I live everywhere. So I live here in Hawaii, a place which you wouldn't really think, you know, doesn't care about protests, a place that literally has protested at Mauna Kea for the last, I'd say, six years. Mauna Kea, by the way, is a protected mountain and a protected ground here in Hawaii mm -hmm. that is being stolen by America, even though it was in, written down on paper that this place would always be in the possession of the Kanaka and the Native Hawaiians, but it's actively being taken to this day. So a place that truly has protested for years, for literally mm -hmm. its entire existence. I have been to protests here and I have seen Kanaka and I have seen other Hawaiian citizens just absolutely counter protest against the Black Lives Matter movement, saying that all lives matter. And, you know, this is all BS. This doesn't belong in Hawaii. Like, you know, I've, I've seen people saying deeply racist things to black people. You know, I got called the N word. You know, I, I don't mean to veer off, but I got called the N word at my job. And the guy threatened to literally kill me and shoot me if he saw me again at my job. So when people, you know, think that it's just, you know, white people doing this, it's obviously not the case, you know, it's happening within people of color, but it's just this false idea of protesting somehow being a negative thing. And um, I just think it's this toxic talk to, uh, cocktail of the media, this false sense of American patriotism. Like even when Kaepernick did the one simple, probably one of the most simple forms of protesting that you will ever see mm -hmm. not only in the u.s but on the face of the earth one of the most simple forms of protesting by taking a knee that created such an uproar and people literally saw that action as being violent you know and that that's what i think is very very toxic and very scary that literally people that support the constitution and reference it all the time you know they could think that a simple act like taking a knee is violent. And I, I, I joke around with my fiance all the time that the constitution is a la carte to certain individuals in this country. And in particular, a lot of um, individuals on the right. And I, I don't want you guys to think that I'm, you know, right versus left, but factually speaking, like it, it truly is. It's, it's very a la carte and, you know, the first amendment matters sometimes. And then sometimes it doesn't like it, it matters if it's on my side and not your side. And it's like, dude, like, you, you can't pick and choose, like, people can have a voice, people can have a say. And you can't now consider it to be violent or un-American because you don't agree with it, or you don't identify with it. People can have a difference in opinion. That's, that's what I where I think the real issue lies. Now, where I don't agree with that in is Nazism. And, you know, another, you know, other few ideals and ideas out there that just do not even care about specific individuals like those people I don't think should have a voice 
but I'm, in reality yeah, I'm, with you. It, I'm with you on that one. yeah in reality this country like we fought in world war ii and like you know we fought against the nazis and i know my grandfather personally actually did fight in that war as a black man and you know came home and was called the n-word and was denied housing and was denied work opportunities and um you know it, it's just crazy so there's this false idea of american patriotism that is truly toxic you know and I, the fact that the military gets dragged into it um it, it's pretty crazy like it's just the way this system is it's the way this country is and i know we kind of talked about it earlier but you wonder when when is enough going to be enough and i'm telling you if trump is somehow elected another four years I think that the movement, I know for a fact that the movement will grow, but I think it should truly be an eye-opening um, point of view for people that this country does not mess with people of color. And if anybody is out there still supporting this guy for quote unquote, the economy or fiscal reasons, just be honest, just say that you don't really like people of color too much. <laughs> just say that you don't really like movements. Just say that you don't like brown people being here. Just say that you want a border wall. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of people just sort of sugarcoating it and dancing around. If you vote for this guy in 2020, you just, it, I know where you stand. And so, yeah, that's, that's really it, you know? And, um, so me being a non-black person of color, right? Um, I I want to to do more, right? Because let's be real. I, even though I'm a person of color, I'm still kind of seen as white in this country, right? I'm very like I'm not white passing to the extent that right. like some other people are, but I am white passing, right? I've never been pulled over for driving while Muslim, right? Right. right. Like that's not something that's going to happen to me. But um, I know, like, I'm I'm also seen somewhat as a model minority. I know, Nora, you touched on this with your work, right? Um, that you said Asians are seen as, like, the main... Oh, the racial triangulation. Yeah, like, yes. minorities are pitted against each other. Like, yeah, 100%. The, they're very much the system, like, you know, the top there are the whites, the bottom is always black folks. But then with Asian Americans, they're kind of like treated like this model minority, like, oh, you're smart. It emasculates Asian men because they're not seen as like, you know, um, dehumanizes them, but it puts them above black folks. So it creates this tension. And then you see like problems like in L.A. You have like um, black Korean issues or in New York City with the bodegas. There was like issues amongst like black residents and then the Korean grocery store owners and so yes. a lot of it though was very intentional because um the folks who have written on this there's a lot of like asian american activists that write on this um the discussion is like this is like if we pit against each other it makes it so much easier for those on top to stay on top because everyone else is busy fighting amongst each other and you just give some folks a little bit of crumbs to be above someone else and that's good enough so how do we disrupt this like how do non-black minorities show up for black lives matter for black issues like how do we disrupt this 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 model this like where you know asian americans are seen as like economically more or in um superior than non-asian minorities i i think a great well one you bring up some just absolutely outstanding and then frankly, astounding points, you know, the fact that you are right, like there is this systemic idea of pitting, you know, cultures and races against each other that has been utilized for, for decades now in the U.S. in particular. But um, I think, you know, my fiance and I, we, we are black. Um, I'm, I'm Hispanic as well. I'm, I'm Afro-Latino, but we are both lighter so just I we've been able to acknowledge that we do have light skin privilege. And so even within the black community, that's something that we've had to do. But I think what what non-black people can continue to do is just being there. You know, I, I will never, ever tell a non-black person of color, hey, like you need to care about this or you need to be there because I have had allies that are just there. They're, 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 they just show up there. They're always on time. They're always bringing information to the forefront. But I, I think, I guess, if you wanted to be that individual that does, you know, sort of provide a space 
for non-black people or to to know what non-black people can do or non-people of color can do is just continuing to spread the information. And my fiance does it the best. She's always sending out articles. She's always sending out information. And in fact, she has this one friend of hers that we have a feeling is part of, you know, she, she leans right. I have a feeling her and her husband support Trump. But at the same time, you know, her and, and uh, her, her friend, they get along, you know, they, they find a way to make it work. But I feel like by my fiance sending her articles and information, it's giving her a different perspective. And it's kind of weird. I feel like she's slowly but surely um, moving her viewpoints left, you know, and that, that tends to happen once you see um, gross injustices taking place. And so at the end of the day, you know, the idea isn't to ultimately get everybody on the left that's on the right. You know, that's that's absurd to think that that's going to solve mm-hmm. systemic racism or, or solve injustices in this country. But I feel like the continued spread of information is so important. And, you know, my fiance and I, we, we plan on having children. And, you know, I, I'm sure you guys plan on having children in the future as well. I would say the number one thing that non people of color, or non-black people or, or non-black or non-people of color could do is continuing to just educate the youth. And that doesn't just mean your kids. If you have nieces and nephews, talk mm-hmm. to them, have a discussion, have a conversation because they know what's going on. You know, my my niece, my, my fiance's niece, her sister's um, daughter, you know, she's able to understand what coronavirus is. And she's young. She's only three. I think she's three and a half. Mm-hmm. But she's able to understand what coronavirus is. And so by just understanding that concept alone, the kids know what's going on. You know, yeah. I guarantee you there's kids out there that are probably saying repeatedly, you know, one of their first words or one of their first sentences might actually be Black Lives Matter. And okay. so that's just kind of the point that we're at. We need to acknowledge and understand that children aren't just kids anymore. You know, they're so much information that's out there, you know, via YouTube or by any of these videos that they're watching. And, and kids are just, they're, they're knowledgeable. They understand what's going on in the world. You know, they have ears, they have brains, they have minds. You know, I think we should just continue to, to allow them to be themselves, you know? Yep. Get and comfortable think, in the yes, uncomfortable. A hundred percent. Cause I think that what, what happened, at least for my parents specifically, and probably you guys as well, but they were always just basically having these proverbial hands over their ears with any and every situation taking place in this country, whether that was the Vietnam War or, you know, the the 70s, pretty much the entire 70s, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. could you imagine being a kid at that time? Like, you just literally had hands over your ears and over your eyes the entire time because they just believed and they had this idea that kids should be sheltered and kids should be you know, kept away from these big issues happening, these major issues happening in America. And I think the most important thing that we can all do is just, you know, keep our hands down by our sides. If anything, like be there for our kids. You know, if if you have a son or a daughter that's asking questions, I feel like the most terrible thing you could do as a parent is to say, hey, you're too young for this, or this is something we can't talk about because now you're 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 crippling your your child, you know, you're doing them a disservice. They obviously recognize what's happening so do them a favor and and help guide them help educate them on what's happening right and it's also like you it's either you teach them or you let the world teach you before you can and i think that's part of the issue is like my brother was in the second grade the first time um he was the darkest um toned kid in our class we we were living in sylvania ohio and so they sent him home they're like he keeps drawing gang signs on his notebook um, his name starts with an S. My mom's like, that S looks like the Superman S. This kid's not in a gang. He's in the second grade. But the right. fact that they took his doodling and automatically criminalized it, like, this is some gang sign. What gang is he in? He needs to stop doodling. And then I think it was around the same age when my mom started getting followed home by white folks who would, like, yell at us to go back home because it was in the height of the Gulf War. So wow. we had a couple, like, really scary run-ins where we would get, like, um, a road rage driver follow my mom because she wore the headscarf. And oh that's how we, that's how I learned how crazy white violence is because I saw people attacking my mom. But I think she was too young, too, at that time to understand 
you know, we had just moved to the U.S. in 1990 to understand what the hell we moved into and what the racial dynamics were. But if you do have a sense of it, prepping your kids helps because you just don't know. You could literally be going to the store with your grandma and someone says something to your grandma. Like, you're better off knowing that these type of things are going to happen as opposed to, like, being in the, in the store and I'm being like, holy hard. shit, like, what is going on? Exactly, because that's traumatic, too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, yeah. Well, look, it's been a, it's been an interesting talk. Thank you so much, Trey. Before we leave, I want to leave on like a lighthearted, because like we've gotten really deep and we brought up, we brought up a lot of like deep things here. I want to leave on like a lighthearted tone, um, okay. just because like, I feel like it's always best to leave with a smile, right? Yes, definitely. <laughs> so I'm gonna do a quick round of trivia with you. All right. All right, let's do it. All right, Trey. <laughs> so, best place to visit in the U.S. Ooh, best place to visit in the U.S. Man, that's a tough one. <laughs> that is a really tough one. No, you got to think about it. Just whatever first comes to mind, you got to tell me. De- definitely going to be Southern California for me. Yeah. Okay, I'll, yeah. I, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> 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 Better pizza, Chicago or New York? Ooh, I'm going to go Chicago on that oh, one. Okay, that might be, that might <laughs> be a controversial answer. That, con- <laughs> yeah, that might be a controversial answer, but whatever. Uh, okay, uh, this one I, I know what the answer is going to be. The University of Miami or the University of Florida, better athletic program? UM all day, baby. Go Canes. <laughs> I, I, I should have known that one. I should have known that one. Um, okay. Better place to live, mainland USA or Hawaii? Ooh, man. You know, I'm, gosh. I'm going to say mainland USA, only because you could take road trips different places. <laughs> uh, all right. And let's let's see if you you become one of Nura's favorite guests or one of her least favorite guests. Oh boy. The Ohio State University oh. or the University of Michigan. Oh boy. Um All right. Somebody's going to hate me so I'll just out and say it. I'm going to have to say University of Michigan. But hey. but but the only reason why I say that is because the University of Miami and Ohio State played back when um I can't think of the running back for Ohio State was there, but I feel like we got cheated in that championship game. So I've always had a bit of sourness towards Ohio State. Ohio I respect State both. Cheats. What was that, Nora? That Ohio State cheats. So I'm with you, Trey. <laughs> team of cheaters. Uh, yeah, look, I hate Dang. you both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but thank you so much for coming on. Um, it was great hearing from you. Um, yes, I appreciate it. Well, once this coronavirus is done, we definitely got to plan a reunion trip. Yes, because I miss 100%. you. Um, yes. So and and I have yet to meet your fiance, so I need yes, to. Yes, she I need is. To... She is amazing, man. She's literally yeah. sitting right across from me. She is the reason I get up every day. Oh, so she is love the best. I love to hear it. <laughs> hey, you guys are welcome in Hawaii whenever you want. When all this dies down, you guys are always welcome. But I need to come at a time when you're not a uh, not a vegan again. <laughs> I'll take a cheat week. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny thing about Trey. He gives up something every year. Like he'll yep. he'll give up like meat. He'll give up like soda. Every year he gives up something for the year just to prove that he can. Like so, it's like wow. his exactly. internal will. Yeah. Yep. I couldn't do that shit. I, I there's nothing there's nothing in this world that I could give up. <laughs> <laughs> But thanks so much for having us on. It was a great conversation, and hey. we loved hearing from you. Hey, appreciate it, guys. Stay safe, and whatever you do, keep wearing that mask. The Sandy Varden Network.